You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. There was once a time, a time which some of us are old enough to remember, when products that were delivered to your home were ordered not through Amazon, but through old-fashioned catalogs. These catalogs could be big, thick books or thin little pamphlets, and they sold you everything. The usual things, of course, from department stores and traditional businesses, but also just strange things. Sea monkeys, x-ray glasses, and the services of world-renowned psychics. It's the last one we'll focus on today, and one psychic in particular, named Maria Duvall. This is a story about the Canadian man who brought her services to our market through a mail-order business. Or at least, he brought us what customers thought were her services. It's the story of a genuinely massive fraud, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars over 20 years from tens of thousands of unsuspecting customers. But it's also a scheme that makes you wonder. Is somebody pretending to be a psychic really that different from psychics who are essentially doing very similar things? Can you defraud someone who's already voluntarily purchasing a service that promises to tell you the future? or make you rich. How did this scheme work? Who fell for it? And what can it tell us about the nature of deceit? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Rachel Brown is an investigative journalist and documentary producer who wrote in depth about a man named Patrice Runner in The Walrus. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Jordan. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Why don't you start by taking us all the way back to sort of the 1990s and just to set the scene, maybe describe the mail order sales and psychic craze of that period in general. What the heck was that? Yeah. So starting off with the mail order industry and the direct marketing industry of the late 80s and early 90s, in North America in particular, this was a very popular way for people to do their shopping for all sorts of things, you know, from catalogs that would come in the mail or various advertisements that would be in print media. So department stores had these mail order catalogs. Individuals could send them out to people, small businesses. Anyone really could do direct marketing and do mail order as a form of selling all sorts of products. And around this time, mail order sales had reached more than 44 billion U.S. dollars in the late 80s, early 90s. And by the early 90s, some estimates show that one in four purchases were made through the mail. And at the same time, then you had sort of this surging popularity and mass commodification of psychic services. So this is separate from mail order, but the pairing was kind of perfect because, you know, people offering psychic services could market directly to consumers through the mail who would pay 
you know, various sums of money for various psychic services or trinkets. And then at the same time, you had very popular psychic-related shows on on TV. Um, you had the Psychic Friends Network. You had Miss Cleo. Right. So psychics were really having a big moment in the 90s. And give me an example, maybe, if you can, of what the premise was here. So what is the mail-order psychic offering, and what do you get? It kind of depends. It varies. So sometimes there would be an initial offering where there would be this big ad in magazines or newspapers and a psychic or someone purporting to be a psychic would say, fill this out with your address and send it back to us if you want to learn more. And then that would be a way for these psychic slash psychic businesses to get people's contact information. And from there, they could send them letters that would vary in length from, you know, a page to more than a dozen pages. Again, for a fee offering so-called personalized psychic readings, lottery number predictions, other types of predictions for things that people could do to supposedly make their lives better. And sometimes they would offer trinkets, charms, things that they promised would bring people good luck, happiness, and wealth, that kind of thing. And we're focusing on one specific psychic today. So in this world, in the middle of this psychic craze, who was Maria Duvall and how did she become famous? Maria Duvall started out as a local psychic. She's a French psychic and she lived in the south of France in the French Riviera in the late 70s. And sort of her most famous origin story was that the wife of a local dentist in Saint-Tropez drove off and disappeared one day. There were all these search parties for her. Police couldn't find her. Helicopters scoured the coast, but no one could find her. Then Maria Duval, you know, an amateur psychic in the area, read about the case in the paper and offered to help. She asked for the missing woman's birth date, a photo of her, and a map of the area where people thought she might be located. She placed this pendulum legend has it, over the area that people believe the, the the wife of this dentist was. The pendulum swung back and forth and then started hovering over one particular area. And apparently that is where the missing wife was found. And from then, Duval was kind of catapulted into stardom as this psychic who could find missing people, predict election results, and help people attain wealth through her stock market predictions. So she kind of was propelled to this status of renowned psychic and was featured in all these tabloids from Italy to Brazil. Um, So she really had a big kind of heyday in the 70s and 80s. Now that we've got that laid down, where does the Canadian angle of this story begin? I mentioned off the top, it's the story of a man named Patrice Runner. Who's that? In the mid-1990s, Patrice Runner was a businessman in the Montreal area. He had already dabbled in a few mail-order businesses offering things like sunglasses and self-help books. He was really fascinated in the mail-order industry from a very young age (laughs) for some reason. And so Patrice Runner kind of ran in these circles of other business people operating in the mail-order sphere. And Runner, who also holds French citizenship uh, like Duval, had heard about Maria Duval, who had been working with other businesses in Europe who would license her name and use her name as part of their own mail order letter writing schemes 
in Europe, um, you know, where people would pay these small fees for her so-called services. And in the mid-90s, he travels to Europe. He's with his girlfriend at the time. They go to France. They go to the south of France. And he's really keen on speaking with her to see if he can get a piece of that pie for the North American market. Hmm. And so that's how he first meets her and basically convinces her that he's the guy to run her North American business. Now, I don't want to give away the whole ending to this story, but I think now is an appropriate time to kind of discuss it. You've spoken to Patrice Runner, right? Where and how did you guys talk? Yeah, so more than a year ago, I came across the story of Patrice Runner's involvement in the Maria Duval scheme. He was facing a number of charges uh, by the U.S. government related to mail fraud and money laundering with regards to this business. And I saw a photo of him. There was like a, a website that's now been taken down, but there was a website up called freepatricerunner.com. And I saw it and there was a photo of him on this beach. And it was like, this Canadian man has been arrested in this huge scam. And so I was just on a whim. Like, I want to talk to this guy. I want to hear his story. It's pretty wild. And mm -hmm. it took me about a year to get up the courage to write to him in prison where he was being held facing these charges and waiting on trial. So I wrote to him and I just told him who I was. And I said, would you like to speak with me and talk to me about your side of the story? And within a few days after he received my letter, he called me. And so for over a year, we were talking by phone. He would call me from prison and I actually visited him a few times in prison. He's in a Brooklyn prison. And so we corresponded over email, phone, and met a couple times in person. So he got his start by heading to France to meet with Maria Duval. Did he get that contract? What came next in terms of developing the next level of this business? Patrice Runner says he inked an agreement with Duval after meeting her in the south of France at her villa. He's never been able to produce that agreement. So it's frankly, you know, it's up for debate as to whether this agreement really exists. Hmm. He says it, it does. Um, I've spoken to his ex-girlfriend who was there in one of their initial meetings as well. And she says it did exist as well. But after that summer of 1994, Runner takes off with this uh, plan to use Maria Duval's name and likeness as part of this mail order operation. And he really runs with it, starting with a, a mail order campaign in Canada and then expanding that into the United States, where it really started to take off for about the next 20 years. So what is, and I know, you know, he's now ended up in prison. So obviously, at least according to the police and the, the criminal system, there's a crime here. What's illegal about selling psychic predictions? I mean, uh, again, I lived through the 1990s. That was everywhere. I think what the issue is here, and it's something that, you know, Patrice Runner takes issue with, obviously. But what's that issue from the perspective of the U.S. Postal Service and the U.S. government, the Department of Justice, is that Patrice Runner and his company were writing as if they are Maria Duval when they're not. Hmm. And according to the Department of Justice, Maria Duval had nothing to do with this scheme. I mean, it's sort of a mystery, all of this. But from their perspective, Patrice Runner was impersonating this psychic using her name and likeness to prey on people who would be 
vulnerable to these types of promises of a better life, wealth, and happiness. And from from their perspective, it was predatory behavior. It was using the U.S. mail system to defraud millions of U.S. citizens. So from their perspective, he was a fraud and he was pretending to be a psychic when he wasn't. I don't say this to try to be cute. Isn't everybody pretending to be a psychic? I mean, yeah. I mean, this is... (laughs) So this is something that I've thought a lot about and I've had discussions with a lot of people about this. Like, there's nothing to prove that psychics are real. There's a lot to show that psychics are fake and, you know, full of BS. But that's not really what's at issue in this case, it's sort of a bit narrower from the perspective of the Department of Justice. It's that it doesn't matter really if psychics are real or not. It's it's the fact that, according to them, Runner was using the likeness of this person when he's not this person. It's copyright infringement, basically. <laughs> Essentially, yeah, that's one way of looking at it for sure. And, you know, his lawyer did try to argue that if Runner was convicted of this, it would stifle you know, the psychic businesses of all, you know, the, the the psychic that you see on the the corner, all sorts of psychic businesses that you see. He even tried to argue, Patrice's lawyer tried to argue that such a conviction, that this case could have a chilling effect for things like magicians who are hmm. carrying out magic tricks. Right. We don't, it's, it's based on deceit and that all sorts of businesses that are based on deceit could be targeted or could come under fire or or even accusations of criminal behavior if runner is convicted it didn't fly with the jury but it's certainly an interesting discussion to have like what level of deceit are we all kind of willing to accept in our lives and what level of deceit are so many industries and businesses based on you know yeah, it's fascinating. And, you know, you mentioned he was at it for about 20 years. You you already mentioned millions of people in the United States who bought this kind of stuff. What do we know about what the audience was like and how big it was, especially maybe here in Canada? It's really hard to say how big the audience was here in Canada. I know just based on my discussions with Patrice that they had sort of this initial mail order campaign in Canada, and then it really took off in the United States. It's hard to say sort of at the beginning stages as well, how many people saw or responded to those ads that were placed in newspapers and print media. But according to the Department of Justice, and, and, you know, Runner talks about this as well, like millions and millions of these letters were sent out over the years. In terms of the scope of this case, it's more than a million Americans and Canadians. I mean, the Department of Justice only cares about the Americans, but more than a million Americans, they say, responded to these letters and sent in money to the tune of nearly 200 million U.S. Canadian dollars. In terms of the types of people that were responding to this, again, the Department of Justice says that it's mostly elderly, vulnerable people who are responding to these letters, people who are perhaps less educated, less aware about these types of schemes and are maybe more vulnerable to to scams in general. Patrice says that there was really no way for him to know exactly who he was sending these letters to. He says it was impossible for any 
direct mailing company to know who might be elderly and vulnerable. Not every elderly person is vulnerable, he says, but that the clientele that he is aware of could potentially have been predominantly made up of less educated people, those who are more drawn to get rich quick schemes and advertisements, lottery number predictions, that sort of things. But there's also a a lot of younger people in general around the world in terms of the European operation, as well as North America, the the North American operation, there are lots of younger people, middle-aged people. So it kind of ran the gamut in terms of demographics. But from the perspective of the Department of Justice, it was a lot of elderly and vulnerable people. Can you give us a taste of what air quotes, I guess, Maria Duval sounds like in these letters? Could you maybe read even just one or two? Yeah, there's one letter that is presented as part of the evidence and part of the exhibits at Patrice Runner's trial. It's a letter from 2013. And in the upper right-hand corner, there's a headshot of Maria Duval, this glamorous, you know, French woman. Mm-hmm. And it's from 2013. And it says, quote, If you've got a special bottle of bubbly that you've been saving for celebrating great news, then now's the time to open it. In fact, in exactly 27 days, I can see clearly that the first incredible stroke of great fortune is going to bring happiness into your life. And the letter goes on to say that if the recipient of the letter sends in $50, they'll get a number of things like a guide to a new life. I think that's kind of based on on psychic predictions, astrological predictions, and then they're going to get a charm with the power to attract luck and money. And that's sort of a kind of a typical Maria Duval letter. Has the real Maria Duval ever spoken about any of this? I mean, surely she could settle the matter of whether or not uh, Runner had permission to use her likeness. So over the years, there have been efforts to track Maria Duval down And in 2007, actually, and this is sort of around the time, there were questions as to whether or not Maria Duval even existed. A Belgian reporter started digging into it after a bunch of complaints from people in Belgium and readers were writing in saying, you know, I think I'm a target of a scam. I'm getting all these letters from this Duval. Who is this? So this Belgian reporter managed to track her down and interview her in Paris um, at a hotel. And he confronted her about the accusations he was hearing and asked her whether she was exploiting vulnerable people. And she said to him, I am indeed responding to people's feelings and my letters are indeed sent in bulk. But what's wrong with that? What I do is legal. Hmm. And that was the last time for about a decade that she'd said anything public uh, at all. And then a major moment happened in around 2015, 2016, CNN did a deep dive into the Duval letters. Patrice Renner wasn't named at that time. I don't think uh, his name was public at all. But around 2015, 2016, CNN journalists were looking into the letters as well after getting a bunch of complaints from people. And they actually tracked her down at her home in the south of France. But she couldn't really answer their questions because she had been suffering with dementia at the time. And so her son answered most of the questions. And he told them that his mother, Maria Duval, was just as much of a victim as these people getting these letters were, saying that she had been taken advantage of various businessmen over the years and had sort of lost her own identity in the process. And that's the last we've heard of her. I've tried, I tried to track her son and her down as well, but I never heard back. What eventually broke apart 
runners, business, scam, whatever you want to call it. I mean, 20 years is a long time. What brought it down? So Patrice Runner had been targeted by a number of different agencies over the years, including the Federal Trade Commission for an entirely different mail order scheme. So he was kind of on the ra- on the on the radar a little bit starting from the mid 90s. Huh. But what really broke the Maria Duval operation in particular was a US postal inspector in the mid 2000s or so just happened to come across one of the companies that Runner operated and kind of noticed some weird financial withdrawal requests that were being denied payment. So this kind of came about just by accident when he was looking into something else. And he noticed that there were a number of people online complaining about this operation. And he finally started zeroing in on a numbered Montreal-based company that ended up being another one of Runner's companies as well, which was called InfoGest. And that was the company that was behind millions of letters linked to Duval. So that starts this civil case that's mounting by the U.S. government and a number of Runner's employees are targeted as a part of that civil suit. And at the same time, within a couple of years, CNN started digging into the letters as well. And really kind of cracked open the European side of the case. And as a result of the civil case, a couple of runners' employees signed this consent decree, which essentially was an agreement that they would never operate mail order schemes like this again. And then a couple of runners' employees ended up pleading guilty to uh, criminal charges, um, conspiracy to commit mail fraud, I believe. And then over the years, it eventually all leads to runner. So I think a couple of Runner's employees worked with U.S. prosecutors to build the case against Runner, and he was eventually arrested and uh, brought to trial. And convicted. And convicted. Runner was convicted in June of 14 counts of different charges from conspiracy to commit money laundering to mail fraud. Does he have any options now? What's he saying? Does he have an appeal? I'm assuming he maintains his innocence in prison. Runner does maintain his innocence in prison, obviously is upset with the the verdict. A, a jury convicted him. He is going to be sentenced in the fall. There may be some opportunity for some, you know, kind of motions for his lawyers to file different motions between now and then. But it's unlikely that the verdict will be overturned. My sense is that the verdict will stand. He will be sentenced in the fall should be noted that, you know, while it may be a bit unprecedented, he could face up to 20 years per conviction. So 20 years times 14. Hmm. So he'll be sentenced in the fall. And then I imagine down the road, he'll try to appeal it. But that's certainly a lengthy and unpredictable process. And if he'd just gotten Maria Duval's actual signature on a contract, he still could have written all those letters himself or had somebody else do it. There still would theoretically have been no actual psychic pouring over each request, but that would have been fine. I don't know. I think about that as well. And I'm not sure. I, you know, I did talk to Patrice about this a lot. I said, well, isn't that kind of the smoking gun in your case if you're able to have this contract be presented and it was never found? But even he said that it it kind of would be irrelevant in terms of its ability to help him just because of the nature of the charges and sort of the way that the Department of Justice was framing the case against him because he and his company weren't her. Personally, I think his previous sort of reputation in this industry and sort of the 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 media attention by the big CNN investigation, I think there was just a lot of things happening that made him 
a desirable target for investigation um, and sort of a way for the Department of Justice to really clamp down on what they saw as very predatory, exploitative marketing and business practices. This has been a fascinating story. The last thing I want to ask you is just how it made you consider uh, the big picture of that era of mail order. I don't want to say that they were all scams, but but mail order promises through those kind of catalogs. I think everybody at least my age remembers reading comics and they'd sell you x-ray glasses for a dollar, you know? <laughs> when we talk about all when we talk about this kind of thing being mail fraud, it really makes me wonder about that whole era and who was getting away with what. It's definitely interesting because it raises this whole case kind of raises questions about the level of deceit in all advertisements. Yeah. The level of deceit in the ways that things are marketed. And I think this case kind of shows the importance of critical thinking and, you know, carefully examining promises that are being made wherever they're coming from, but particularly when it involves your finances uh, and requests for, for money. But I think there's also something about and, and, you know, Patrice talks about this as well, the persuasive nature of writing mm -hmm. and the impact that can have on people and our emotions and can compel us to do certain things and think certain ways. So that's sort of more of a philosophical way of looking at it, but it certainly calls into question the persuasive power of writing and the persuasive power of advertisements and corporate interests. Rachel, thank you so much for this. It's an incredible story. Thanks so much, Jordan. I really appreciate it. Rachel Brown, writing in The Walrus. You should definitely give this story a read. We will link to it in our show notes. It's a lot of fun and filled with, like I said, strange things. You can find us at thebigstorypodcast.ca and you know how to get in touch with us by now and we would love to hear from any of you. You can find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can email us. The address is hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca or you can just call us and leave a voicemail 416-935-5935. If you're listening to The Big Story in a podcast app that lets you rank or review or follow us or subscribe to us or do basically anything, we would love it if you would. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. <laughs>